Genesis chapter 32 this morning. Genesis chapter 32. Continuing in our series on the great stories of the Old Testament, today I want to talk about Jacob and his wrestling match. Genesis 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant." For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? And you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. But he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go, unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. He said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. 
For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Well, Father, we're thankful once again for another glorious story from your word. And I pray today that as we look at it, that you speak to our hearts. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Give me wisdom and clarity and power and unction and all of those things. And I just pray, Father, today that you'd use this time. Are there any here who don't know you as Savior? I pray if that's the case that they would. They would be attentive. They would hear. The Holy Spirit would take this and apply it to their hearts. Speak to them. Tell them the truth of it. And Lord, if there are Christians here who need something from this, I pray also that they would be blessed and encouraged and strengthened. So use the time. We give it to you. Jesus' name, amen. Well, first a little bit of background. Jacob had an older brother. His name was Esau. And uh, those of you who have read the Old Testament know that many years earlier, Jacob had cheated his brother out of his blessing, his father's blessing. And subsequently, he had been forced to flee to avoid Esau's rage and retaliation. You could read about that in Genesis chapter 27. In the ensuing years, both brothers had prospered a lot. And now God had told Jacob to return home, and Jacob did so, all the while fearing Esau and fearing that he would still be seeking revenge. We come now in uh, Genesis chapter 32, and we learn here that as he grew close to his homeland, he sent messengers to Esau to let him know he was coming, and they delivered his message, and then they returned with some disturbing news. Esau was on his way to meet them with an army of 400 men. This terrified Jacob, as you can imagine. The last thing he knew, Esau wanted him dead. Esau had not hidden that intent. And so he was terrified. So Jacob did what he had always done. He plotted, and he schemed, called up a way of uh, that he thought he might be able to get out of what he was sure would be a violent and vengeful encounter with Esau. He decided to try bribery, and so he sent herds and animals and Gifts ahead to meet Esau. After he had sent those gifts and those herds on ahead, he then sent his entire family on ahead, planning to meet Esau as the very last person in a very, very, very long chain, train of gifts. And this is where we pick up the action in our text and the part I want to talk about today. Jacob has sent all on ahead. And now in verse number 24, he's left alone. Jacob was alone. And as we think about this story and as we read it, we can't help but arrive at the conclusion that God wanted to accomplish something here in Jacob's life. Jacob was about to come to a tremendous decision point concerning his relationship with God. This was a crisis point in his life. And it was a crisis point he had to face alone. There was no daddy Isaac. There was no mommy Rebecca to help him out now. Scheming Jacob could not scheme or plot his way out of this one. Brilliant Jacob could not think his way out of this one. Hard-working and ambitious Jacob could not work himself out of this one. He had come to the end of himself. And he had to face this. He had to face God alone. I'm reminded of a pastor friend of mine who told one time about a surgical procedure he'd had to go on through. He'd had a big scare in his life and found himself having to face surgery. 
And after it was all over and he was back in his pulpit, he was describing the experience a little bit. And I remember him describing how he was laying on that gurney and he was being rolled toward the operating room. And his family was all gathered around him and holding his hands. As they got to the door, they prayed with him and kissed him on the forehead and whispered how much they loved him and all that kind of stuff. And then the orderly said, okay, it's time, and pushed through those doors, and their hands fell away from his. And he heard those doors whoosh close behind him, and he said he has never felt more alone. He was rolling along in that desolate hallway, alone, alone. And, of course, that's where the real business with God takes place, doesn't it? Every one of us has to come to an alone place. Every one of us has to come to a place just like Jacob did, not as part of a crowd, not with family there to help us or anybody else to bail us out. Alone, all of us must come to this alone place where we face God. One way or another, you will. One way or another, you will do business with God and you will do it alone, whether in this life or the next. I came to such an alone place when I was quite young. I'd heard the gospel preached. I'd been in church most of my life and witnessed to by others. I'd thought about it. I'd prayed about it as much as a a young boy can. And then one day the Lord got hold of me. And I was alone. I'm pretty sure I was sitting right about back there somewhere. Where Mary is sitting, maybe. Somewhere back there. But there was nobody else in this room. It was just God and me. And nobody could make that decision for me. I had to do it alone. And there in that alone place, I confessed my sins. And he saved my soul and forgave me. I had a good friend named Charlie Sprouse. Charlie Sprouse, when I knew him, was in his 80s, crotchety old man. He had worked as a heavy equipment operator earlier in life. And uh, he had had many a run-in with the law. Charlie Sprouse had a very interesting background. I can tell you many a story about Charlie. Uh, he had had many a, a run-in with the law because he liked to uh, run moonshine stills in the hills of Kentucky. And he liked to fight roosters, which I don't know if you know that or not, that's illegal. And he used to like those things. He loved his roosters and he loved his moonshine. Charlie had been witnessed to by many people in his younger years. and He had laughed at them. He thought it was funny. He'd actually seen the inside of a church a few times. He'd heard the gospel. When I knew him, he was a wonderful saved man. And so I asked him one day, how would you come to know the Lord? And he said, believe it or not, he said, I was sitting on the seat of my bulldozer. And he was just working one day, operating his bulldozer all by himself. And he said, all of a sudden, the Lord got a hold of him, and he started thinking about all those things other people had said to him. And he couldn't get away from it. And right there alone, just Charlie and God, he turned his life over to the Lord. Alone. You see, my friend, God wants to meet you alone, and he's going to do it one way or another. If you don't meet him before you die, you're going to meet him after. And if you meet him in this life, you'll meet a loving Savior. If you wait until meet him alone in the next life, you're going to meet a merciless judge. Oh, that people would seek the Lord now while he may be found. Jacob was left alone. And verse 24 goes on, and it says, And a man wrestled with him. Jacob was left alone, and a man Wrestled with him. Now, I, I, I try to picture these things in my mind. I have to admit, there must have been an extremely tense moment right here. Can you picture this situation? I mean, think about this. Jacob has sent everybody away. It's night. He's alone. It's dark. He believes nobody's there. I, I can imagine he's probably closing his eyes and trying to get a little shut-eye because he's got a big day tomorrow. And he's, he just thinks he's... And all of a sudden, out of the darkness, a hand comes whipping out and grabs him. There's a word 
a phrase for that kind of an experience that I probably cannot share from the pulpit. But you can imagine uh, what kind of a moment that probably was. This man grabbed him. So who was the man? Who was this man? Now, at first, Jacob didn't know, but eventually he came to realize and he came to believe it was God himself. We see that in verse number 30. And the man himself implied that he was God himself when he changed Jacob's name to Israel in verse number 28. And if that's not enough evidence as to who this man was, the prophet Hosea tells us exactly who it was. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel and the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord, God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 5. And so this man was God. He was God. This is one of several times when we have this concept of the angel of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament. It refers to Jesus Christ himself. We believe these were pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord. We saw it when uh, he spoke with Abraham before he was uh, going to go down and destroy Sodom. In Genesis chapter 18, verse number 1, we see it when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 2. I think we see it when uh, Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire where the three Hebrew children were down in there, and he said, I see a fourth man, and he looks like the Son of God. So here is this man. We know it to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Reaches out and grabs hold of Jacob. And the next question has to be, was it actually a physical wrestling match, or is this a picturesque thing? Is he actually really physically wrestling with somebody here, or is this just talking about prayer? I've heard many a sermon where this is just simply described as uh, an, an illustration of prayer. Physical or just prayer? Well, as is so often the case in these kinds of things, the answer is yes. Clearly the Bible tells us it was a physical wrestling match, Right? But it is also a wonderful picture of prayer, as we'll see, and we can apply the text that way. So let's think about it. It was a wrestling match. It was a fight. Now, that, that, that word right there, that, that tells me that this was an adversarial thing. That means that this man who was wrestling with Jacob was his adversary, not his friend. Up to this point, Jacob had known of God. He had worshipped God in some sense. He had even prayed to God. His prayer in verses 9 through 12, there at the beginning of this chapter, is really quite wonderful. But Jacob had always uh, fallen back on God when it was convenient. He had always used God when it was necessary. He hadn't yet come to this crisis point. When he had turned it all over to God and trusted him completely. And when Jacob was trying to go it alone, when he was using his own ingenuity and trickery and cunning and wisdom, when he was using God only when it was convenient, God was actually an adversary to him. That's interesting, isn't it? An enemy. I think it's a reminder to us, I think it's a warning to us that he is at enmity with all who are lost and away from him. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. The Bible tells me that he is your enemy. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. James chapter 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It never ceases to amaze me how many people go through their lives fighting 
against the very God who longs to save them. But if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ yet, that's exactly what you're doing. You are content to have him as your adversary. He could be your friend. He could be your savior. Well, it was a fight. And it was also a fight that Jacob could not win. He had managed to trick and connive his way through his life using his own ingenuity, his own genius to accomplish things without having to rely on God. But here was an adversary he could not defeat. He was an adversary he could not trick. Here was an adversary who actually gave him a taste of his own medicine just at the point where he might have thought he had the upper hand. The man reached out and touched him on the thigh. And I love the way that's stated there. You know what? It just makes me think of think. Just touched him on the thigh. Think. That's what he did. The man didn't beat Jacob on the socket of his hip. He didn't throw him on the ground and stomp him or twist or batter or pound him like some of us would have to do to accomplish what was accomplished. He didn't take some weapon or some club. Think. He just touched him. And Jacob was immediately hobbled. Reminds me of an arm wrestling match I watched one time between two ridiculously mismatched opponents. I recall that they, uh, they assumed their positions and they began to wrestle, and the one weaker opponent immediately started grunting and groaning extremely loudly. And there was all kinds of effort pouring forth from this individual. Sweat poured off, his eyes bulged out of his head. You could just, you could just picture this. And he would think for a little while that he was winning. He might, you know, feel his arm going over just a little bit, and the other guy would look like maybe he was losing. And then it would go back and back and forth. Until finally the stronger one just wearied of this nonsense and with just a flick of his wrist ended the match. That's the way I think of when I think about this. I think that it was just an instant. Adversary touched him. He was crippled. He was defeated. This was a fight he could not win. Alan Ross puts it like this. He said, when God touched the strongest sinew of the wrestler, it shriveled. And with it, Jacob's persistent self-confidence also shriveled. His carnal weapons were lame and useless. They failed him in his contest with God. What he had surmised for the past 20 years now dawned on him. He was in the hands of the one against whom it is useless to struggle. And my favorite commentator, who I've mentioned before, Boyce, he has an interesting comment about this. I want to share it with you see what you think about this. I'm just going to read a little bit. He said, the second detail of the passage that I think we can readily understand because of our own willfulness is God's touching Jacob so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. Because I think we do understand this, I want to make one observation. Even so, I hesitate lest I be misunderstood. What I want to say is this. God does not play fair. God does not play fair. Now, please, when I say God does not play fair, I do not mean that God ever does anything that is sinful or unjust. The Lord of all the universe does right. He is perfection itself. What I mean is God does not play by our rules, and he never loses. He is the sovereign God. His will is done. So whether we like the way he plays or not, God always wins the contest. And if we are smart, we recognize this early and submit to it. Have you never had your life put out of joint by God? Have you never had your own little plans dislocated? Of course you have. You were trying to do something contrary to God's will, and suddenly out of the blue God used sickness or a loss of a job or some severe setback or a disappointment to bring you to the end of yourself and turn you to him. 
I do not suggest that every sickness, loss, or disappointment comes because we are out of the will of God. God sometimes has other purposes with these things. But sometimes, sometimes quite often, he uses them to bring us to our senses. It was a fight, and it was a fight he could not win. Well, let's notice another important part of the story. It's also seen there in verse number 26. And Jacob said, let me go. Or he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go. I see a couple of applications here. We mentioned that this wrestling match is often interpreted as a picture of prayer. And so Jacob's holding out and fighting all night long and then refusing to give up until you bless me is a wonderful picture there, isn't it? Not of importunity in prayer and and, uh, determination in prayer. And we know that kind of prayer gets results. We quote Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, Often ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus gave us that wonderful promise. But unless we really study that, we don't really realize what Jesus was saying there because it doesn't say what we think it does. What he really said was keep asking and you will receive. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be open. He was teaching us to pray without ceasing, as Paul told the Thessalonians and as our brother Randy spoke with us on Wednesday night about. So here's Jacob. Can you picture him? Grappling there through the night with this adversary on the verge of total collapse, even crippled from the effort, saying, I will not let you go. Until you bless me. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever prayed like that? Well, that's one way to interpret it, but there's another application that we could make also. God initiated this fight with Jacob. He initiated this fight to bring him to the point where he would believe, where he would turn to God in faith. What he was seeking from Jacob was a change, and Jacob's response to that was he fought against it. He fought against it hard. Until the breaking of day. What an amazingly long time that is for a wrestling match. Aren't most wrestling matches like six minutes long? And when you watch the people who have been in the match, they kind of like just drag off. They're all completely exhausted after like six minutes. And here this went all night long. He didn't give in. What a picture of how so many today, and, and so many that we could even think of perhaps today, uh, fight against God. People who will turn to everything and anything rather than just turn to God. People who no matter how much and how hard the Holy Spirit draws them to the cross, fight it tooth and nail. Saul of Tarsus was one of those. When he finally gave in and was saved on the Damascus Road, Jesus said to, unto him, Whew. I added that part, Whew. it was hard for you to kick against the bricks. Because he'd been fighting and fighting. Paul had been fighting with everything he had to avoid turning to Christ. I love the way C.S. Lewis described his salvation experience, his conversion. Let me, let me quote from him. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal 
who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Are you like Jacob? Are you like Jacob wrestling against God? Are you like Saul of Tarsus kicking against the goads? Are you like Lewis kicking and struggling against God's offer of salvation? See, God says to all, just as he said to Jacob here, give in! You cannot win this fight any other way. Give in. So Jacob was alone. He was wrestling with a man whom he could not defeat, but whom he would not let go without a blessing. And so the battle raged through the night. The night draws to a close, and the man asked Jacob an interesting question. What is your name? What is your name? Now, as we approach Scripture and as we study Scripture, we find ourselves often asking questions of the text. That's a good thing to do. It's a healthy thing to do. You're not smart enough to come up with something that's going to stump the Bible. It's not going to happen. And so asking questions is a good way to think a passage through. So there's a question here we ought to be asking ourselves. Why in the world would God need to ask Jacob his name? Did he not know it? Did he not know it? Of course, forgive me, I have to insert a Star Trek reference at this point. You may remember in the fourth Star Trek movie, it was the search for God. Remember that ridiculous one, one of the worst ones that ever came out. Uh, there was a, a situation there where a creature calling himself God was marooned on a planet and he was trying to trick the Enterprise into taking him away. And James T. Kirk, the captain, asked the obvious question. What does God need with a starship? Why in the world would God need a starship? And do we not want to ask the same question here? How is it that God didn't know Jacob's name? It's an equally good question. Of course, we know that God did know Jacob's name. That's not why he asked the question. There are two things here that help us understand why God asked this question. What is your name? First, I want you to notice that he asked it after Jacob requested a blessing. I will not let you go until you bless me. Okay. What is your name? He was basically saying, he was basically responding to his request and saying, uh, if you will, if you want what I have to offer, you have to tell me your name. That's the first thing. And secondly, another thing that helps us is to remember that names in the Old Testament were descriptive. Jacob's name meant something. Jacob means literally heel grasper because you remember he grasped his brother's heel even in the womb. But it also means cheat. It means supplanter. It means deceiver. God was asking Jacob. He was inviting Jacob to confess who and what he was. Who are you? Who are you? And Jacob had to come face to face with his name, with what he was. I am Jacob. I am a cheat. I am a liar. I am a swindler. I am a schemer. And see, the thing is, no wrestling with God ever ends until we come to that place. That's the key to the whole passage right there. We, we, we say it often here, the goal is the soul. God's goal here was Jacob's soul. The wrestling match is what we see in the event. But the goal of that wrestling match and the result of that wrestling match was a change in Jacob from Jacob to Israel. Israel means God fights or fights with God, depending on how you interpret those two words that make up the word Israel. When Jacob came to the end of himself, saw himself for who he was, a sinner in need of a Savior. 
His long fight with God was over, as was God's long fight with him. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. A new name for a new beginning. Ladies, you remember when you first got engaged and you spent hours writing your new name? Remember that? Why do women do that? Because it means a new life. It means a new direction. It means a wonderful beginning. Jacob, Israel, was ever after a changed man, as anybody who comes to Christ must be. Well, there's one last thing I want us to note, and it's in verse number 31. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. He limped on his hip. When we come face to face with God like this, it changes us forever. And we can never forget it. Jacob's meeting with God both crippled him and blessed him. He was forever changed. You know, the older I get in my faith, the more I am convinced it's nearly impossible for a person to name the name of Christ without there being some visible evidence in their life. If you're saved, it shows. I don't think that's a wishful thing. I think it's a Bible thing. People will say all the time, my faith is between me and God. It's a private thing. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible says. I don't see that at all. The Bible says if you're saved, it shows. There's evidence. You walk with a lamp. My son had a bout with cancer some years back. And now if you look at my son today, he bears scars of that. He has hearing aids on his ears from that. My father was in an accident just a couple of well, actually, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of his accident. He broke both of his legs. Today, he walks with a walker when he's being good or with a cane when he's being bad. But there's evidence. Muhammad Ali took blow after blow after blow after blow to the head. In later years of his life, there was pretty good evidence as you watched him palsied and shaking and affected from all that trauma. We're not surprised, are we, when somebody shows evidence. They have an encounter of some sort. And they were the evidence of that encounter ever after. Why then would we think it normal for someone to step away from a wrestling match with the living God and there'd be no evidence whatsoever? Moses' face glowed simply from being in his presence. Make no mistake, becoming a Christian is a life-changing experience. Believers ever after walk with a limp. Someone asked Martin Lloyd-Jones once a a well-known English preacher from years ago, they said, what does a person look like who has truly met God? And he replied, he walks with a limp. And he was no doubt referencing this very verse. So where's your limp? Where's your limp, Christian? If one were to ask your coworkers or your classmates or your family or anybody else who knows you, what has changed about this person now? Since they came to know Christ, would they be able to name something? Do they see you limping now? Jacob was never the same again. He was now Israel. His life for God basically started at this point. He never looked back. And every step he took limping upon that hip, people could look at him and see and know he was a changed man. My Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you haven't already, you need to underline that verse in your Bible. And you need to circle that little phrase, all things. Because if you're saved, that's you. You're changed. You're different. You walk with a limp. And people can see that. So where is it? Where's your limp? If there is no limp, 
There is no visible change in your life. I want to suggest something. I want to suggest you're still wrestling. I want to suggest you've probably never been saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Tell him your name. Turn to him in faith and be saved. Jacob met God, wrestled with God, finally confessed his insufficiency apart from God, was given a new name, and was ever after changed. How about you? Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for this wonderful story from the life of Jacob. I pray that it speaks to our hearts. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room who remains in the midst of that wrestling match, I pray, Father, that they give in this day. I pray they'd tell you, tell you their name. I pray they'd confess. I pray they'd repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And ever changed. And I pray that those of us amongst us who perhaps name the name of Christ, who maybe have been coming to this church for a long time or some church for a long time, many people have heard us say we're saved, and yet there's no limp. There's no real change in our life. We live just like we always lived. Lord, if there's anyone like that, I pray today they'd examine their life. The Bible tells us, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Let us not be deceived by Satan telling us that we're saved when we're not. Help us, Father, to examine today and make sure that we have indeed repented and believed the gospel. Well, whatever decisions people need to make as we sing our final song and we have our time of invitation, I pray, uh, whether they... Uh, do business with you right where they stand or whether they come and kneel at this altar. Whatever people need to do or want to do, I pray they do as we sing and as we think about these things and respond to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.